Christ is the righteous one. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Today we arrive at the climactic moment in the sacrifice of our great high priest. We have been following the journey further and further down over the last several weeks. We have seen the Lord Jesus Christ betrayed and deserted by his disciples, betrayed by Judas, deserted by the rest, seen him denied by Peter, and then we've seen him on his trial, we've seen him falsely accused and falsely tried and beaten and mocked and scourged and shamed. And then last time we saw him lifted up in crucifixion. Today we arrive at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. At least at the end of it prior to the resurrection. But it's not simply the end as the final destination in a journey, but it's also the end in a sense of completion. This is, in fact, the purpose for which Jesus came. Text this morning isn't only a completion of the earthly ministry of Jesus, but it also something of a culmination of everything that Mark has been putting before us about the Lord Jesus Christ here. So let's read our text this morning. We'll be in Mark 15, starting in verse 33, down through verse 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama selachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning, truly, you are the Son of God. And we bless you for coming and laying your life down for us. We ask that you would help us as we look into your word. Help our hearts to cherish you as you deserve, to praise you, to worship you with our mouths and our hearts in it. I pray that you would help us, that our lives would be lived in light of what you've done. Grant us joy. Help us this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. In our text, we see that the Son of God bears our judgment to grant us access to God. The Son of God bears our judgment to bring us to God. As we work through our passage, we're going to see judgment, and then access, and then confession. Uh, As our passage opens up, Mark describes a a strange phenomenon in verse 33. Uh, It says here that at the Sixth hour, when it had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hours. 
three hours of darkness. The sixth hour is noon, and the ninth hour would be three o'clock. And so for three hours here, at, at the noonday brightness of the sun, there's darkness, no light. This isn't simply a, a solar eclipse. Those really only last a little bit of time. Uh, it is God himself shutting out the lights. There's darkness all over the land. Now, what is the point of this? You see this darkness come in? If we look at the Old Testament and consider the, the theme of darkness there, we often see darkness associated with judgment. Robert Plummer points out three different texts to demonstrate this. Uh, you think of Amos, in the book of Amos, Amos chapter 8, verse 9, and the context of God bringing judgment on Israel. It says, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. When God brings judgment, he brings darkness there, even at noon. In Joel chapter 2, verse 10, here's another text. God foretells uh, about a cloud of locusts that's coming as judgment. And, and there, again, notice darkness and judgment. God says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Or, Zephaniah 2.15, See that the day of the Lord will be a day of great tumult. He describes it this way, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. There's three passages there where we see darkness coming in the day of judgment. Another example that comes to my mind, you can think about the plagues that come on Egypt. Of course, the final plague the tenth plague was the death of all the firstborns in Egypt. But the plague that came right before that was darkness. Darkness was over all of Egypt. And only where Israel was at was their light. Again, darkness is associated with judgment in the scriptures. And here at the cross, there is a supernatural darkness that blots out the lights of heaven for three hours. I think here is elsewhere, this is pointing to judgment. All of the grueling suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ endured was immense. We looked at some of that in the weeks prior. Uh, no one on earth would ever want to experience what Jesus experienced for physical pain and suffering on the cross and the shame that came with it. But I believe that the agony that Jesus has in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to his Father that this cup would pass wasn't primarily about the physical suffering leading up to it, though I'm sure that was part of it. I think this moment where Jesus knows that he will receive the judgment that our sins deserve, that, I believe, weighs heavily on Jesus. Now, there is certainly some mystery in the operation of how all of this works. But we should not miss the fact that Jesus here in this moment is paying for our sins. That our sins are judged on the Lord Jesus Christ at this time. If we step outside of this text, we see the New Testament authors saying this very thing. 
I want to just read through a couple texts. Galatians chapter 3.13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Shocking language. Christ is made sin on the cross. How exactly does that work? I don't fully understand. But it's what the scriptures tell us. Or think, on the other hand, about how Paul encourages the Colossians. He's telling them what has happened for them in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. Colossians 2, 13-14. Paul says, "...in you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." How? How is it that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So we see the testimony of, of the New Testament authors. They continually point to the fact that Jesus has taken upon himself the judgment that we deserve. This picture emerges with clarity even, as, even if there is some mystery in it. Now, that truth and what Jesus is doing here is all the more striking when we consider what we have seen about him so far as we've spent the last couple of years going through Mark's Gospels. And as you've spent your lives walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and you have learned of him and seen of him, what kind of a man was he? The testimony of the scriptures is that he was a man full of righteousness. He lived uh, that perfect life that every single observant Jew should have lived, but didn't. There was not a single point in his life that he committed a single sin. Now that's quite shocking. I, we don't know what he was like as a boy and as a teenager and all of that time, but... He didn't sin in any of it. That is a breathtaking perfection. Not another human being on this planet has ever done what Jesus did. Think about it. Jesus never lied. He never stole, never murdered, never dishonored his parents in thought or word. He never coveted, never envied, never committed idolatry, nor did he ever put his trust in some source other than God. He never set his heart on wealth. He never acted rashly or foolishly. He never soaked in self-pity. 
He never lusted. He never became sinfully angry. He never inappropriately used the power at his disposal. Instead, he gave himself in every way that his father led him to give himself. Think about just the the normal daily good things that Jesus set aside in his life. Uh, He set aside the security of a steady job. He set aside the human freedom of marriage and children. He set aside a stable house and guaranteed meals. He forewent all of these blessings that we enjoy. And you know what? He didn't trade in this life of security to be a carefree bum either. With the nothing that he had, he gave everything over and over and over again. Jesus gave of himself throughout his whole earthly ministry. He poured himself out day by day. And we see through Jesus and his ministry and his life that he fulfilled all righteousness. Adam in the garden was made in right relationship with God, but he hadn't done all the things that God had called him to. We don't know how long Adam went without falling into sin, but let me tell you, there was a lot more ahead of him that he was called to do, and he fell short in that. Not only did he disobey God, but he failed to do all of the good things that he was called to do. Jesus, the second Adam, not only did he not disobey, he obeyed in every single thing. He did everything that God had called him to do. Immediately, like that. When he was called to do it, he did it. It was his joy to do the will of the Father. In everything. Even in the very thing that nobody would want to do. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then, with his perfectly righteous self, he laid it down. Here on the cross, as we see here, Jesus lays his life down. He pours himself out even further. He takes upon himself the judgment that we all deserve. We get a picture here of perfect righteousness taking full judgment upon himself. Now what could possibly give voice to the trauma that Jesus is experiencing at this moment? I think Psalm 22.1 is right. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out in the forsakenness of this moment. Now the people who were standing around, they didn't understand what he meant. Maybe they intentionally misunderstood. They don't get it. They start running around uh, and getting sour wine. They think he's calling out to Elijah to come and save him from this moment. They just don't get it. Uh, But we don't have to misunderstand it. The gospel writers and the letters of the New Testament teach us about the significance of this moment. In some inscrutable way, the Son of God, the Christ, takes upon himself the judgment that our sins deserve. I believe he absorbed the wrath of God here, uh, which is what every single sinful human being deserves. At the cross, Jesus becomes a propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a $5 word that means that something is a satisfaction. Uh, He makes satisfaction to God 
for the sins that we have committed. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26, spells this out a bit for us. We know, of course, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, going on here, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This text tells us that God in his divine forbearance, in his patience, had passed over former sins. We think of the the sins committed in the Bible and those who were redeemed there. Well, in some senses, their sins weren't paid for yet. God was passing over those sins. He wasn't judging them as they deserved because he, in his patience, was waiting for this day at the cross. And it's there that sins are paid for. It is there that Jesus puts himself forward as a propitiation, as a satisfaction for the debt that our sin incurs. And through that, God becomes just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As a just judge, he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. Instead, Christ takes the punishment that our sins deserve. Every sin will be judged, whether it is in us for all eternity or on Christ on the cross. God is both just and justifier. Now, all of this is very weighty, but it is at the core of gospel truth. It is the very means by which God has saved us. As I mentioned, there's some mystery in it. Does all of this mean that on the cross, God the Father hated the Son? I don't think so. No. In fact, I believe the Father was all the more delighted in his Son, that he was willing to do this, to to take our judgment on himself. I don't believe that God in his Trinitarian nature is ripped apart on the cross. But I do believe, in some sense, the perfect Son experienced relational suffering here. Uh, Jesus, throughout all of his life, had perfect communion with his Father. There was no disruption to that communion. His experience of fellowship with God in this life was complete. But on the cross, Jesus does cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe at this point, Jesus experienced a withholding of that perfect fellowship that he had experienced his whole life as mediated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think at this moment, the smile of God was clouded from the vision of Jesus. And in that, he experienced the judgment of separation. Now, an eternal separation from God is what every single human being deserves for his or her sin. That's a staggering reality. At the cross, we see the seriousness of sin. That's what it deserves. Now, every sin, like I've said, that has been committed will be judged, either on Christ or in us for eternity. Now, are you confident, I want to ask you this morning, are you confident that that day on the hill of Golgotha is where your sins were dealt with? Do you have confidence in that? That that's where it was paid for? 
Are you resting in the salvation accomplished by Jesus on that day? Or are you running around looking for sponges and missing the whole point? This text is put before us to, to put the Lord Jesus Christ before us and what he's done. Brothers and sisters, you can rest in this. Satan will dredge up all sorts of sins and dumb things from your past that you've done, but it's all hollow. It has been paid for. You can walk through your life and experience hard things, and you don't have to be afraid that it's God paying you back. Do you know why? It's already paid. God is never turning the screw in on you, making you agonize over things that you've done just to pay you back. It's paid for. Your sins have been dealt with. That changes all of our lives. We live under the smile of God because of what Christ has done for us. Do you live that way? Do you live as if God is pleased with you? Because in Christ he is. He is pleased with you. You are his child and he loves you. He will never turn you away. It's a dreadful thing to look at the cross. It's a dreadful thing to consider what Jesus went through. But it is a beautiful thing that he has accomplished for us. I want to keep moving in our text here. We've seen judgment. The next thing we see here in our text is access. As I mentioned, the people standing around don't understand what Jesus is saying. They think he's calling out for Elijah. And some Jews had an understanding that Elijah would come and deliver people who were in distress. So maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they think Jesus is calling out to Elijah to come and do this. Or maybe they're intentionally misunderstanding him. Maybe they're trying to add to the mockery. I don't know. But somebody runs and gets some sour wine. And before, when wine, wine was mixed with myrrh, Jesus refused it. He wouldn't take a deadening of the pain of the crucifixion. But here, as he's drawing close to taking his last breath, he takes sour wine. And people are standing around and they're waiting for Elijah to save Jesus. But again, of course, they've missed the point. Jesus doesn't need Elijah to come and save him. Elijah needed Jesus to save him. We see then Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he breathes his last breath. The rightful king of the universe bows his head in death. The author of life is slain at the hands of wicked men. The sacrificial lamb is offered up to atone for our sins. Now, it's not the gospel writer's intent to flesh out every single Bible doctrine. We shouldn't expect the gospel writers to elaborate on everything. That's not their main point. Some people have wondered why there are things that are taught in the letters of the New Testament that aren't taught in the uh, gospels. Uh, Some people have even questioned whether we should even listen to Paul because he says some things that we don't find in in the gospels. Uh, I I think when we take that approach, we're misreading the gospels themselves. Uh, We should just let the gospel writers be the gospel writers and report to us what they're telling us And then we should trust God for the other things he's taught us as well. Uh, That being said, there are 
some things even in here where we see the significance of what takes place through the death of Jesus. I want to reread verse 38 here. Uh, it says, And when, uh, excuse me, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed out his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, Mark doesn't elaborate on the meaning of this event, but he includes it intentionally. Uh, Mark and Matthew both include the detail that the, uh, the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Luke includes it. I believe John does not include it. Uh, there's an intentionality in this. Now, what is the point of the curtain in the temple in the first place? Uh, the purpose of the, the veil in the temple is to restrict access. Uh, the veil that was between the holy place and the most holy place was there to keep people out who weren't supposed to be there. They weren't even supposed to look in there. Uh, and it was put in place for the safety of those who drew near. If somebody drew near to the presence of God and they weren't welcome, then their very lives would be in danger. And even those who drew near had better do it in the right way. Uh, you can ask Nadab and Abihu, except you can't, and that's the point. They drew near with unauthorized fire, and they were consumed. The presence of a holy God is a terrifying thing. And so the curtain is put there to keep people out for their safety. Through the death of the sinless Lord Jesus Christ, that veil is torn. Through the blood of Jesus, we are granted access in to the presence of God. We are welcome to draw near to God without fear of his fiery wrath falling on us for our sins. You know, throughout the trials and the crucifixion of Jesus, I've returned a lot to John 1.11. Uh, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Really got to go on. As we see what happens here, we go on to the next verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Because of what Jesus has done, we have been granted access. We have the right to be God's children. We not only have the ability, but we have the right to be God's children. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we've been given access to God. The throne of God's judgment has become a throne of grace to us, a throne of mercy. Now, Christian, are you mindful of the fact that you are daily in the presence of the God of the universe. That you are daily uh, available to have access to him. Are you mindful of that? There's a, a Latin phrase, uh, quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. We live all of our lives before the face of God. We are able to draw near. Because of the cross, we have God's love on us. The, the love that he had for us that sent his son, now we enjoy through Christ. Live that way. Live in light of God's favor towards you. Uh, live with and for the God who has redeemed you. There's another note here about the curtain. What I want to point out, it's again Matthew and Mark both mention that it's torn from the top to bottom. I've heard somebody raise the question, why is that? Why include that specific detail? I never got to hear the answer to their thoughts on it, but sometimes the question itself is helpful to get your mind going. 
I could be wrong in this, I don't know, but perhaps the reason that both Mark and Matthew include the detail that it's ripped from top to bottom is that it is proof that it's something that God has done. If people were to come and tear it, they'd tear it from the bottom up. But the, the temple veil is torn from the top bottom. It's like God has come and ripped it in half himself. And as we think about what God has done for us, it's his work. It's, not, it's nothing that we've mustered up and figured out and we've worked our way back into access to God. It's something that he has done for us. It's something that we couldn't accomplish, but he did. And so we've seen now judgment and access. Just for a few minutes left here, I want to consider confession. In verse 39, I'll reread it. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Upon witnessing Jesus die on the cross, this man can't do anything but confess who Jesus is. He perceives somehow Jesus is the Son of God. And he declares that. Now it's striking. This is the very truth that Mark's gospel has opened up on. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here, right towards the end, we see it restated. Now, and this isn't the only uh, thing restated. It, it, the word that's used for tearing, the, the ripping of the curtain, occurs back in chapter 1 as well. We see uh, the, the heavens at Jesus' baptism are ripped open and the Holy Spirit descends. Uh, it's not something we often do, but ancient writers sometimes did that, pull things from the beginning and the end to really pull the, the whole thing together. And we are getting these restatements as, as Mark is pulling together the whole gospel story. It's emphasizing the importance of the, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And we're bringing something of a conclusion to the, the ministry of Jesus. And there's more. We'll be looking at the rest of the gospel here too. But uh, we really have to see Mark is pulling this together. And in fact, uh, Mark loves irony. It seems like throughout his gospel he's pointing it out. There's even more irony here. Uh, who is it who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah, it's a Gentile. <laughs> it's a Roman centurion who's standing there who confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. It's striking. It's not the, the people who were there who should have accepted him as king. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the people. It's, uh, it's a Gentile. Now, if in fact Mark has written this gospel account to the church in Rome, think of the kind of comfort that would be there in that for them. That here at Jesus' crucifixion, it was none other than a Roman centurion who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. All throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen that people aren't getting it. But here, the centurion has gotten it. And he's confessed who Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, there's comfort in that for us. It doesn't matter where you were born, what your family or tribe is. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has gone out for all peoples. We will never be disqualified because of where we were born, the situation of our birth, any of those kinds of things. The gospel goes out to all. We have been given this access. Even 2,000 years later, the door is open. And that's why we go out and we share. We tell people. There isn't a single person that we could see and 
say, well, they're disqualified. They're, they're, there's somebody I shouldn't share the gospel with because God's just not saving that kind of person. <laughs> Aren't we often shocked by the kind of people that the Lord saves? Aren't we shocked that the Lord has saved us? It is his mercy. This man gets it and he confesses it. And this morning we join him in confessing that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is the Son of God. Next week we're going to turn our attention to the, the burial of Jesus as we continue on. And so I'll invite Elsa to come and play and the men to prepare for communion as we go to prayer together.